choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 247 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, Moonwalk 1. Continuing from the previous episode, Apollo 12's lunar module, Intrepid, had just landed safely. The astronauts quickly went through their checklist and were given permission to stay. I even took a peek. It's a nice place to land. Boy, it sure was dusty, though. I'm sorry, I flew by, but that was just going too fast. Nice touchdown. Felt like you just a little bit on the back. The good thing we leveled off high yeah. and came down, because I sure couldn't see what was underneath us once I uh, got into that dust. That went a long way. Something's <laughs> going to the horizon. Did you really? Just like you said. Look at those boulders out there on the horizon, Pete. Jeez, my It's a pretty good place. Right over there. Yeah. Those rocks. Are we over the Copernicus Ray area? Is that right? Oh, great. Okay, Houston, are we go or stay? Intrepid Houston, uh, you're staying. If you'd like to recycle and try it again, we'll uh, talk to Sims. (laughs) No, not this time. Yeah, we're still mad at him for earlier in the week. Roger. Okay, let's get off box. Conrad and Bean were to spend... 31 and one-half hours on the moon, some 10 hours longer than Armstrong and Aldrin. During that time, they would take two moonwalks, each lasting about three and one-half hours. Most of the first excursion would be devoted to setting out an autonomous scientific station called the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package, or ALSEP. The second walk would be an extended geologic traverse culminating with a visit to Surveyor 3. Conrad and Bean would cut off pieces of the probe so the engineers could see what had happened to it during its 31 months on the lunar surface. Pete and Al laughed out loud. After Capcom, Jerry Carr passed along the flight surgeon's suggestion that they rest up a bit before venturing outside. Rest up. After all of this, all the training, preparation, the dreams and visions of humankind for thousands of years, and here they were, the third and fourth in the history of the species, to set foot on this thing 
and the flight surgeon expects them to sit down for a smoke break? Right. That's not going to happen. Conrad and Bean did the power down and suit up like a couple of kids cleaning their room as fast as they could so they could get out and play in the snow. Everyone wondered what Pete would say when he put his boot down on the sand. What could he say after Neil's excellent words? Contrary to common and cynical assumptions, the astronauts weren't scripted. Who would even try to script a bunch of test pilots and fighter jocks with their egos fully intact, riding a rocket to the moon? No, they were on their own on this one. And knowing Neil, Pete figured he probably didn't think about it until he was at the bottom of the ladder. And then he uttered the phrase that will live forever. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. How could Pete follow that? Conrad knew people wouldn't remember the third man to walk on the moon. There was no need to make up something momentous to say. At one of the hundreds of dinners for Buzz, Mike, and Neil after Apollo 11's return, a journalist asked Pete about his upcoming moonwalk and what his first words on the moon would be. The journalist asked, quote, What are they going to have you say? End quote. Barely hiding a contempt for the Big Brother spin, some of the NASA lesser fans were crafting in the non-mainstream press. Pete laughed. He was enjoying this line of questioning more than the reporter wanted him to, and he was turning on the charm. Pete replied, It's up to me, darling. He was laying it on thick with his Texas-Pennsylvania drawl, and she didn't believe a word of it. Pete said, I'll tell you what. Let's you and me decide right here and now what I'm going to say when I set foot on the moon. It's on TV, real time. I can't lie to you. If I say it, you owe me $500. If I don't, I owe you. Deal? The reporter responded, Deal. At 5.38 a.m. Houston time, Four days, 19 hours, 16 minutes, mission elapsed time. After five hard hours of careful work, Conrad and Bean were finally ready to begin the first of their two moonwalks. Bean had seen the pictures Armstrong and Aldrin brought back, and he'd listened to their descriptions of the moon. But nothing could have prepared him for actually being there. On the ocean of storms, he saw a bright, rolling expanse of craters and rocks. Above, he saw a sky that was not only black, but somehow shiny, like patent leather. This was a world where time was measured not in decades or even millennia, but in eons. In this utterly still and lifeless panorama, there was somehow a kind of beauty and he and Conrad would get to walk on that alien ground and probe its secrets. For all of his adult life, Bean had been a pilot. Now he was going to be a lunar explorer. 
Now the men were sealed in their spacesuits, wearing life support backpacks and special lunar helmets and boots. Inside his helmet, Bean could feel the cool flow of oxygen go past his face. He heard the reassuring whir of the fan that blew air through the suit and the pump that circulated water from the backpack through tubes in a special pair of long underwear. Hey, my boiler's on the line. Yeah, mine's coming up too. Feels real good. Yeah. Let's see, I can go to uh, intermediate flow, huh? Yep, soon as you start. The water in the tubes would keep him cool during the moonwalk, no matter how hard he worked. Like everything else in Apollo, Bean's spacesuit existed because of the efforts of 400,000 engineers, technicians, and scientists. He had gone to the factory in Dover, Delaware, where the suits were made, and he had met the women who glued and stitched their space-age garment. Now he thought, I hope those ladies cared as much then as I care right now. Fighting the stiffness of his pressure suit, Bean reached down and opened a valve to release the cabin pressure. Even through their helmets, the men could hear the rush of escaping gas. After long minutes, Bean peeled back a corner of the thin square hatch, letting out the last bit of oxygen that had kept it closed. Pulling the hatch open, Bean backed into his corner of the cabin and cleared the way for his commander to go outside. Hatch 
open 1151037. Being watched carefully as Conrad squeezed his suited bulk through the narrow opening, making sure his commander's suit didn't damage the hatch seal. Bean told Pete, You're headed right square out the hatch. Wait, wait, wait. Come forward a little. There you are. With Bean's continued help, a fully suited Pete Conrad crawled out of Intrepid's front hatch and onto the porch. Conrad and Bean could not gauge distances or sizes, and that made it almost impossible to figure out what craters were in front of them. But when Conrad finally stood on the top rung of the ladder, he could actually see part of the surveyor crater. In fact, he realized with a mixture of relief and alarm, he had landed intrepid less than 30 feet from the crater's rim. TV starting to come in. Hey, I'll tell you what we're parked next to. What? We're about 25 feet in front of the surveyor crater. That's good. I don't want it to be. I got. I, I bet you when I get down to the bottom of the ladder, I can see the surveyor. I agree. Yeah, you want to take this with you, Pete? Sounds good, Pete. Just like you wanted. Just swing her out here. That's right. Conrad headed down the ladder while a color TV camera broadcast the scene to the Earth. Caution dictated that he move slowly in the lunar vacuum, but Conrad was impatient. From the moment of touchdown, he couldn't wait to get outside. He had to get down to the surface and find out once and for all whether the surveyor was really there. Roger, we've got a TV. No P. Conrad as yet. 
Now I'm at the top of the ladder. Okay, now look, this thing is all the way out of the ladder. How do you want me to do it? Keep doing it. Huh? How do you? No, but this thing isn't all the way out of the... I took it. You know, let me have this end of it. Back up the ladder a notch. Jim? Adam, boy. Which end is that? Betty. Sure flies in one six, Betty. Yep. Looks like we got 900 feet of this stuff. Dude, just a second. Don't go down yet. I gotta get my camera on you, dude. I can't get down yet, anyhow. I gotta whoop. Get the LAC all the way down. That's the lunar equipment conveyor swinging in the screen there. What's the problem? Oh, and LEC came out of the bag in three pieces, and as you would well imagine, I picked the wrong piece. You want me to pull it back in and throw you in? No, that's not the problem. There's no trouble. I got it right now. Man, they aren't kibbling. They say things get dusty. Pete stopped on the last rung of the ladder, looking down at the gray-white sand. That last step was a doozy, almost three feet, and like pausing before leaving a diving board, he took a breath, then backed off the ladder in a half jump, and Pete Conrad, stuffed into a hundred pounds of spacesuit, floated gently down and stood on the limb's footpad the third human being in history to do so. What were his thoughts at this moment? Down to the pit. Okay. Man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. In case you didn't catch that, the words were, whoopee, man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but it was a long one for me. End quote. They were, in fact, prepared remarks, but they were prepared at a banquet table with that pretty yet cynical journalist, a self-deprecating joke about the five, six, and a half inch astronaut's height. There was no more significance in the words than that. They boomed over the speakers in mission control and were met with the usual response of those in Conrad's presence. Big belly laughs. Yep, that was Pete up there, all right. The one and only. Pete laughed too, secretly knowing he had just won his bet with the journalist. Only, he never saw her again. And he never saw his $500 either. As Neil Armstrong had done, Conrad held on with his right hand and placed his left boot on the moon. He swirled his foot in the dust, saying, Ooh, is that soft and queasy? I don't sink in too far. End quote. Still holding on, he planted both feet 
on the surface and then let go. His first steps brought him into the blinding glare of the sun. He turned away from it, moving in small, floating steps across the shadowed ground, leaning forward at an impossible angle to compensate for his backpack. He felt as if he might fall over at any moment. Pete continued, Well, I can walk pretty well, uh, Al, but I've got to watch where I'm going. Conrad kept walking until he could look past Intrepid's foil-covered bulk to the east, across a vast bowl twice the size of a football stadium, and he could hardly believe what he saw. On the crater's shadowed far wall, set a tiny, spindly, white-shaped Surveyor 3. He let out a high-pitched cackle. Conrad said, Guess what I'm seeing on the other side of the crater? Bean had a good idea. He said, The old Surveyor? Conrad said, The old Surveyor, yes sir. It can't be more than 600 feet from here. How about that? In Houston, Capcom Ed Gibson Radio congratulations, but his words were drowned out by the sound of applause. The trajectory people had done it. The pinpoint landing was a reality. Tomorrow, Conrad and Bean would visit the unmanned probe and cut off pieces to bring home, but only if they could reach it safely. Conrad was elated. I can walk pretty well. Uh, uh, now but I gotta take it easy and watch what I'm doing. Boy, you'll never believe it. That's what I see sitting on the side of the crater. The old surveyor, huh? The old surveyor, yes, sir. <laughs> Does that look neat? It can't be any further than 600 feet from here. How about that? But right now, Conrad had work to do. Well planned, Pete. Okay. To do here, right? Say again? I say that was well planned, Pete. Yeah, just a couple of months uh, with a lot of people. Let's see, deploy the LEC and the Mesa, that's done. I'm looking at my mobility. Heat heat shift. I have the decided impression I don't want to move too rapidly. But I can walk quite well. That surveyor really is sitting on the side of a steep slope, I'll tell you that. Okay, I'm going to work on my contingency sample. Got to walk real careful, Al. Okay. Can you see me all right? Not yet. I need to step back to the window for okay. a hurry. After a few moments, everyone listening in Houston and around the world 
heard an unaccustomed sound from the lunar surface, the sound of Pete Conrad humming. Dum-de-dum-dum-dum. Nothing in particular, just tuneless, mindless humming. Dum-de-dee-dum-dum-dum. Inside intrepid, Bean didn't notice the humming at first. He had heard his commander do the same thing in the simulator and flying T-38s. Even for Pete, though, this was more than usual. Every few minutes, the tune that had no tune crept onto the Earth-Moon airwaves. In the press room at the Manned Spacecraft Center, the reporters covering the flight half-jokingly wondered if Conrad was on an oxygen high. But to more accustomed ears, this was simply the sound of Pete Conrad in his no-sweat mode. Meanwhile, back inside Intrepid, Al Bean finished helping Pete with getting some gear down to the surface. And then there was nothing to do but wait. But suddenly a problem occurred in Bean's suit. The cooling system in his backpack wasn't working correctly. Imagine coming all this way only to be kept inside by a last-minute malfunction. Al, how is the uh, feed water look now? Well, it's still got an A in there, but I'm plenty cool. I went back to minimum, and I'm sitting here at minimum. What do you think happened? Al, we'd like to watch it a bit. It could be instrumentation. Stand by. Okay. But... Thankfully, the problem turned out to be temporary. By now, Alan Bean had watched as his commander danced over the craters 20 feet below for half an hour. At last, it was Al's turn to join this generation's ultimate adventure. As Conrad gave directions, Bean backed carefully out of the tiny cabin and descended the ladder, unaccustomed to the strange lightness of his space-suited body. At the bottom rung, he leapt backwards, sliding his hands along the rail like a fireman as he fell in slow motion and landed gently, but not gracefully, on the foil-covered footpad. Conrad was waiting with his camera, saying, Okay, turn around, give me a big smile, attaboy! Bean lifted his foot and placed it on the ancient alien dust of the ocean of storms. Conrad was there, taking his picture again. You look great, said Conrad. Welcome aboard. Attaboy. Okay. You look great. Welcome aboard. Hey, please. Wait a minute. Chart I didn't get. The boy calling chart on undisturbed service didn't make it. The contingency family area I got out. Can you press I got? I'm off for the left-hand Okay. Here we go. Okay. 
Okay. No going in until you have watch shadow. Yep. You can't see what you're doing. Come over here where I am. See that surveyor sitting there? There that thing is. Look, good look. Look how close we almost landed that creek. Get him some feet. For the rest of his life, people would ask Bean what he was thinking at that moment. And he would tell them his thoughts were on one thing, his checklist. On his left cuff, he wore a checklist that looked like a small spiral notebook. Conrad had one too. On those pages, almost every minute of their time on the moon was accounted for. Before the flight, It had been Bean, with his love for detail, who had delved into the task of helping to write that checklist. But before he set about his assigned task, there was something he wanted to do. Reaching into a storage pocket on his thigh, he pulled out his silver astronaut pen, the one he had worn on his lapel during his six years as a rookie. When he returned to Earth, he would receive the gold pin of a space veteran. Now, with a few halting steps, Bean stood at the edge of the surveyor crater, and he threw his rookie pin right into it. Salutations from Southern Alabama. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 247 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12, Moonwalk 1, Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Today, we salute my Moon Emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for three years in a row, and they receive a Moon Emoji next to their name on the donors page. Had just a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. Next week, of course, we will continue with Apollo 12's first moonwalk. And I also wanted to remind everyone to get your tang ready. Every 50 episodes, we have a little fun celebrating with the Tang Ceremony. Next week, it will be episode 248, so we should hit 250 in maybe the first week of April. So get your Tang ready. Oh, and I want to thank an anonymous donor who sent me two cans of Tang. (laughs) Whoever did that, thank you very much. They will be consumed, I assure you. (laughs) Thank you. I want to give credit to my sources for this episode. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. Rocket Man by Nancy Conrad. The Apollo 12 Flight Journal. And, of course, Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean. Well, it turned out Pete nearly landed the lunar module in the Surveyor Crater. About 25 feet from the edge, 
But pinpoint landings are real, and they can pull it off. That was really kind of close, especially considering the distance they covered. Now, Al Bean spent six years as a rookie astronaut, and then he became the fourth person to walk on the moon. I think he was really glad to get rid of that rookie pin. He just threw it in the surveyor crater. I have a little bonus coverage here, and I would like to read a passage from Alan Bean's book, Apollo, an eyewitness account. The passage, I think, really expresses what it meant to Bean to walk on the moon. The title is called Beyond a Young Boy's Dream. When I was a young boy, I dreamed of flying airplanes. I built model airplanes of balsa wood and paper and glue. Some were powered with thin rubber bands and others with small, noisy gasoline engines. By the time I was in high school, model airplanes of all shapes and sizes were hanging by thin wires from the ceiling of my room. Airplanes were the last thing I would see before falling asleep at night. I dreamed of flying higher than the highest cloud and faster than the fastest wind. As I grew older, the dream grew stronger. When I completed flight training and my mother pinned on my navy wings of gold, when I was a jet pilot flying off tiny gray aircraft carriers on the vast blue oceans, when, as a test pilot, flying all the Navy's latest aircraft to their limits, and when, as an astronaut, I was training to rocket to the distant white moon in a silver spaceship. Well, here I am, standing on the moon. To reach this distant world, I flew higher than any cloud and many times faster than the wind. I am living much more than my boyhood dream, and now, as I look out over the magnificent desolation of the lunar surface, little boys and girls on Earth are building model rockets, dreaming of flying higher than the moon and faster than a shooting star. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. Well, I was pleased to receive five new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Pete S. from Australia donated at the Orion level. Greg G. donated at the Apollo level and earned his shooting star emoji. Matthew P. from London donated at the Soyuz level and earned his rocket emoji. Pete C. from Australia donated at the Soyuz level and earned his moon emoji. And Gary C. donated at the Vostok level. That brings our Patreons to 161, with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. And our overall donors have reached 214, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, 
click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated in 2018, I certainly appreciate it. I have an item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. It has the picture of the official SRH logo with the rockets. To select a winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. She put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for J. Andrews. J. Andrews, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received four new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past few weeks. I want to sincerely thank those who gave the podcast the all-important five-star rating. And I want to also thank Eric Mose for the very kind review that he wrote. Thank you, Eric. Okay, that's all I have for this week. Hope to have episode 248 posted by next Thursday. Get your tang ready. So long for now.